Well, welcome to the Aspen Chapel for our podcast today. And we're delighted to be able to bring Rami Shapiro, um, who's a very famous mystic teacher, uh, teaches all over the world, and today he's going to be talking about surrender. I'd like to welcome all those uh, watching online. It's very good to have you with us today. Rami's going to be talking about surrender. And uh, this is from the Bhagavad Gita. Knowledge is better than practice. Meditation is better than knowledge. And best of all is surrender, which soon brings peace. Rami. Oh. <laughs> Good morning. There it goes. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about two things Sur- surrender and being surrendered. And we're going to take a look at, in a moment, at the two texts that you've got from the Gospel according to Mark. And I'm going to use Jesus as my paradigm to make the the point I want to make about being surrendered being a deeper experience than surrendering. Well, I want to go back to what um, the the Gita says. I just want to reread this again to you. Knowledge is better than practice. That's interesting, isn't it? Most of us would think it's the other way around. And while I I would be the last person to challenge Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Gita, I think think the word practice here is better understood as ritual. That's That's what the text is saying. Knowledge is better than ritual. You can go through all kinds of rote behaviors, but knowledge really matters. And the kind of knowledge they're talking about is in the Hindu t- tradition called jhana, means wisdom. And the idea, is it's a yoga. There's, besides uh, asana-based yoga, the posture-based yoga, hatha yoga, there are four uh, classical yoga schools. Uh, service yoga, um, which is karma yoga, bhakti yoga, which is heart uh, yoga, devotional yoga, um, raja yoga, which is meditation, and jhana yoga, which is study. And the idea is that you can study in a certain way that'll actually change your consciousness. So it's not that you're just getting more information. Something can actually shift. And that's the kind of knowledge that I hope you're going to uh, get from, from the presentation this morning. And then he says, meditation is better than knowledge, and surrender is better than meditation. So if you want to just cut to the chase, we should just surrender, right? Right? And then you wouldn't have to do any ritual. You wouldn't have to read anything. You wouldn't have to study anything. You wouldn't have to meditate, which is really difficult for lots of us. And all you have to do is, I surrender. The problem is, you can't surrender what needs to be surrendered. Because the you that's surrendering is, in fact, what needs to be surrendered. Right? So I do a lot of work in 12-step programs, and maybe some of you are in 12-step. I've, I've written a book on it, and I know Father Thomas has. Mine is better. And, uh, 
It's, it's true. But, you know, you, you turn your life over to God as you understand God. But the way you understand God, and this is right in the big book, you know, Bill W. tells you that he had trouble with theology. He didn't like religion. He didn't like, like priestcraft, he called it. And he, he said, but then he learned, he realized you can just make God up and then surrender yourself to that. But if you're making it up, then you're surrendering to the part of you that made this up. It's just an extension of you. It feels good. It sounds good, but it doesn't actually do anything. So my first point is you cannot surrender because that is still an act of ego. So let's take a a look at the first text, um, which is about Jesus trying to surrender. Now, if you consider this a holy book, which means it's a book that you have trouble challenging, then maybe you should go downstairs with the kids <laughs> because I don't have a holy book. I think all these scriptures, whether it's the Gita or the Torah or the Gospels, they're all created by people. And they reflect the great genius of human beings and the great madness of human beings. And you know, this is a red-letter Bible, so everything Jesus supposedly said is in red. I would rather have a Bible where the good stuff is in red and the evil stuff is in, oh, I don't know, pick another color. And the new, blue, okay, so the, the, the good stuff's in red, the evil stuff's in blue, and then the neutral stuff is just regular uh, black ink. So that you could say, oh yeah, that's evil. Why am I even reading that, right? Because there's a lot of evil in the Bible. God says some really funky stuff in the Bible. So let's take a look at, at this passage. They went to a place called Gethsemane, that they meaning Jesus and the boys. And he said to his disciples, and it's important to know that these are boys when you read the next passage, because this is a, when you realize these are human documents, somebody is having a good time at the expense of men. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and they began, and, and began to, be, to be distressed and agitated. Not them, him. Jesus is upset. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here. Stay awake. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass. In other words, I don't want to do this. Now, it was fun until this part. You know, I had a great time. Walking on water is cool. I like it. Loaves and fishes. Hey, I could do that you know, forever. This is really fun stuff. But I got a sense that whatever's coming next, it's not really exciting and something I'm looking forward to. So maybe we could skip that part. So he says to God, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. So he's asking God to not surrender yet. He's asking God to, I don't, don't make me do this. And then he realizes that this is, may not be possible. So he says, yet, not what I want, but what you want. That's trying to surrender. He's surrendering. He says, you know, what I would like is not to go through whatever hell I'm about to go through. But it's up to you. So really, I surrender. Your will be done. When you read it, when I read it anyway, it's, it's almost like, like you're talking to your parent and they want you to do X and you don't really want to do it but you don't want to just stand up there and say, I'm not going to do it, because they'll just 
stamp their feet in the, and make you do it. It's, it's, it's not going to work. And they're the parent. They have the power. So you go, oh, really? Do I have to? I really don't want to. But if you want me to, I'll do it. But I really don't want. And he does it three times. Just in case God didn't get it the first time, right? No, I really don't want to do this. But no, if, if you want me to, I'll do it. But, but really, God, I really don't want to do it. No, but really, it's okay if, if that's what you want. So I suspect that the surrender is still egoic. It's, it's, a, it's a technique. It's a, it's a um, he's negotiating with God in a sense. But God responds how? You can look as close as you want, and you discover God doesn't say a thing. <laughs> And all the great crucial moments, God seems to be out for a sandwich. You don't know it. So God doesn't say anything. Now, Jesus could have said, Abba, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. But it's not what I want. It's what you want. So what do you want? Hey, guys, we're leaving. <laughs> we're going home now, back to Galilee. God didn't say, you're going to go through with it. Jesus could have decided that God was saying, you're right. We don't have to go through this. But he didn't. So we don't know if Jesus heard anything from God. Certainly the reader hears nothing from God. Jesus goes through it three times, doesn't get what he wants, which is maybe some kind of, oh, Jesus, you don't have to do it. Something like that. He doesn't hear that, so he just says, okay, we're going go to go to, go to Jerusalem. Now the question is, does he know what's going to happen? So we don't really know that. It's not clear. But you know, you, I mean, you could read the whole thing. We don't have to go through it all. But every time he checks on the boys, the boys are always sleeping. Jesus is the only person awake. God may be sleeping because he doesn't say anything. So Jesus is the only person awake, and all the boys are sleeping over and over and over again. And then he says to them at the end, are you still sleeping and taking a rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed by the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then the camera would pan, you know, to the right. And we would see Judas coming with the Roman soldiers. But you have to remember, the men are sleeping. So I'm suggesting that this is an, an expression of someone who's trying to surrender. Who doesn't want to do what has to be done. But it's trying to surrender, in this case his, trying to surrender his will to the divine will. But it's not a complete surrender. There's this hedge. You can do anything. I'd rather you didn't do this, but if you want to, it's okay. That's not the kind of surrender that is actually transformative. The kind of surrender that is actually transformative is one that, no pun intended, crucifies you. And that's where we're going to go to next. So as we go into the, the next text, I want to just give you a quick insight into why Christianity is so vitally important in the interspiritual scene or the world religion scene. I, I believe that all religions are made by people, most of them by men. I believe that, as I said earlier about sacred texts, they can, religions can contain both the highest to which humans aspire, uh, our greatest wisdom, and the, our, our darkest insanities. And we put them all in the word of God. We, we claim God, you know, 
God says in the Hebrew Bible, love your neighbor as yourself. That's one of the highest things people can imagine. And then a couple of sentences later, and God says, but by the way, when you find the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Hevites, he says, wipe them out, every man, woman, child, and cow. Right? I mean, either God said both things, but had forgotten to take his meds when he was giving the second thing, or the person who said, love your neighbor as yourself, is in this very high spiritual place where he realizes the unity of, of all beings, and you want to love everyone as yourself, as an extension of the one self of which we are all a part. And then someone else who is not in that place, who is in a really a place of, of uh, egoic fear and constriction, who's afraid of the other, however defined. So in, in that in the text I quoted, it's you know the Amalekites and, and all those guys. Fearful of them, his God wants them dead. Because God oftentimes is simply a projection of what we want. And that's why when we want love, God talks about love. When we want the, the, the slaughter of our enemies, God talks about the slaughter of enemies. I don't think it's, it's anything magical. I don't think it's a theological issue. I don't think you have to figure out why would God do this. God doesn't do any of this stuff. People wrote this stuff, and they make their God carry the genius or the madness of the, the author. So, so you follow that? We may totally disagree. And theoretically, I could be wrong, but I'm not. So, <laughs> so consider that. But each religion, even though they're all of human origin, each religion carries with it images and stories and symbol systems, archetypal symbol systems, that speak to deep, deep human truths that are not alien to any of us. So let, let me give you a quick example. Uh, I used to... Uh, do regular workshops once, twice a year at La Casa de Maria in Santa Barbara, California. Lovely Catholic retreat center. And they have a church on the property. And in the church, they have one of the most horrifying crucifix, crucifixes I've ever seen. Where I live in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, we have a Catholic church. Where I live, Catholics are not Christian. Uh, neither are Mormons. Uh, and then the rest of the Christians just bad let out who really is, but we all know it's the Baptists. But <laughs> at St. Rose's Church, when you walk in, there's this gorgeous crucifix. It's got like rebar piping coming out of the back. And there's a cross, but Jesus is already being resurrected. It's, it's more of an ascension image than the crucifixion image. And he's, he's alive, and he's not suffering in any way. And he's got his arms out, not nailed to the cross, but sort of to embrace the world and he's being lifted up into the sky. But the crucifix at La Casa de Maria is this, I mean, it's this just horrifying image of a man broken on the cross. And that's, that's the image I want you to have in your head. And I, I did a, one of my first retreats there was a Jewish retreat, and the people said, we're not doing anything in the church, are we? Because they were like really nervous about having to go and be in the presence of a ceramic Jesus. <laughs> they thought, oh my God, that's too frightening. So... I, you know, I said, no, 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 we're not going to do anything in the church. But on Saturday night, I said, there's an optional program in the church to just have an encounter with Jesus as a Jew. Right? Not as Christ. I know nothing about Jesus as Christ. I know something about Jesus as a Jew. So those who wanted to come, about 50 people came. We're sitting in the chapel, and the 
just looking at this really broken man on the cross. And I asked the people, when the spirit moves you, just articulate what you're getting from this scene. But I don't want history. I don't want you to say, oh, you know, Roman tyranny or, oh, this is the beginning of anti-Semitism and nothing like that. I want the human emotion that is coming through this broken man on the cross. And they understood within seconds, I think, of what was going on. And they started to say things like fear and suffering and um, despair and whatever, whatever they came up with. And it went on for a few minutes. And then we went into silence. And then I asked them, are, are there, were there any, of all the things that were mentioned, were any of the things mentioned alien to you? And they said, of course not. Those are all human emotions, human experiences. So I said, here's this icon that is carrying these emotions, reflecting them back to you so that you can embrace them at a distance. So maybe work with them as opposed to being trapped in them. And why, why would that frighten you? And, you know, for those for whom it was still frightening, they kept going back to, oh, Christians hate Jews and all this kind of stuff. But for those who were more open to the humanity of the experience, they realized that there is nothing frightening about it at all. We're, we're given in the image of the crucified Christ, I think, the most stark, powerful, I don't know, unreserved expression of human brokenness that we can imagine. If, if This is just me. But if I'm feeling broken, the image I want to dialogue with is Christ Jesus on the cross, not Buddha you know, on the cushion. I mean, I, I spent 10 years in the Zen Buddhist world. I, I studied Buddhism. I, I have a lot of deep respect for Buddhism. But I, I never saw the Buddha in any expression other than, you know, just a little smile, like, ooh, it's cool, everything's great. I mean, maybe it's great because he was born a prince, and so, you know, if he ever gotten really in trouble, he'd go home and get money from his mother. I don't know, but nothing, nothing resembling the tortured Jesus appears in the iconography of, of Buddhism. That's not a criticism, that's simply an observation. If I'm looking to find serenity, I'm not going to go look at the cross. Jesus is not serene on the cross. But if I'm looking to to reflect on my own sense of of despair and brokenness, I don't want to go to the Buddha. And my, my fundamental sense is that because religions are human, you own all of them. You may have been raised in one or the other, and you may have a preference because of that for one or the other, but they're all part of your inheritance as a human being. And the more you study them, the more you'll find, oh, here's something in my life that really resonates to Islam or really resonates to Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or Christianity, whatever it is. And when you're in those situations, you should go to those places that resonate the most without ever having to identify as anything in particular. So let's take a look at the second text. When it was noon, this is a a chapter later, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud cry. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. In Hebrew, it's Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's verse one of Psalm 22. So Jesus calls out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the last thing Jesus says. That's the end of the story for him. Unlike 
the other Gospels where he keeps saying other things. You get to the Gospel of John, it's like Jesus can't, can't stop talking. You know, he says stuff, and then he's like, unto your hands I commend my spirit. Oh, wait, uh, it is finished. You know, oh, here's another one. <laughs> it's like these things are coming to me. Because, wait, I don't want to waste this one. I'm not going to be here again, so let me get this out. But this is the first gospel ever written, and the only thing, this is the first gospel written, and the only thing Jesus says on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is being surrendered. There's no, hey, this is okay if you want it to be okay. There's no bargaining. There's no subtle, come on, give me a break. There's simply, where are you? The implication here is that Jesus thought he would be saved. The implication is that he knew this was going to be bad, but it was going to be doable because at some point, God was going to intervene and do something magical. And now he's at the end. He realizes, well, it didn't happen in Gethsemane. It didn't happen when they were whipping me. It didn't happen here. It didn't happen there. This is the end of it. You know, this is it. I'm on the cross. If you're not going to do it now, when? And so at the moment he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is being surrendered of everything he had hoped for. That's, that's the point. He didn't do it. Reality did it. But whatever he was clinging to, whatever hope he had, was taken from him at that instant. And that is the act of being surrendered. And then he dies. Now, we know, because you can skip ahead and see the rest of the story, we know that something else is going to happen. He hasn't got a clue. If he does have a clue, then the whole story is useless. I was giving a talk the other day, a few hundred Christians at a, at, a, at a conference, and I said, do you think Jesus knew that the resurrection was in store for him? And they all said, yes, of course. If that's true, then the crucifixion is irrelevant. If he knew he wasn't going to be dead for long, then the crucifixion doesn't really matter. I can only relate to Jesus as a human being broken on the cross if he, like me, has no hope of a resurrection. Because otherwise, it's just a bad day. And it's going to get better. But if he doesn't know, then he's truly being surrendered. Meaning he has nothing left to hold on to. And the moment when you have nothing left to hold on to is the moment the transition happens. And that's why the story, and you can take it literally if you want, I take it metaphorically, but that's why the story then tells us about the resurrection. Because when you're free, meaning everything you hope for, all of your ideas, everything you've been building your life around, have been taken away from you, you are free from all the stuff you imagine, and the only thing you have left is reality itself. And reality itself is this resurrected self with a capital S, I guess you'd say, that is only about love. Now, Christianity takes that and warps it into something else that turns it into just another religion of fear and hatred, right? And now, you know, for as soon as you get the Holy Roman Empire, it's over, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't ascribe that to Nicholas. <laughs> That's just me. Um, but 
when we're talking about Jesus himself, if I'm just listening to him and learning from him as opposed to the church later on, then what happens when he's resurrected is just love. Love is what happens. And love is what happens to all of us when we are graced by the absolute destruction of everything we hold dear. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, in the age of Oprah, and we all love Oprah, not picking on Oprah, but in the age of Oprah, we interpret that psychologically. What's your cross? Oh, my cross is I'm an addict. My cross is my parents didn't love me. My cross is my parents got divorced when I was young. That was really difficult. My cross is my sister was always picking on me and flushed my head in the toilet all the time when I was little. I mean, we all have our things. But in Jesus' time, they didn't even have toilets. <laughs> so your sister didn't do that. That wasn't a concern. When Jesus said, take up your cross, the only cross they knew about was the cross that the Romans used to crucify people uh, all over the, the country, but in this case on Golgotha. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to get crucified. Everything you believe in is going to be stripped from you. And then he doesn't say, but it's going to be okay because we're going to have a party afterwards. He just says, take up your cross and follow me. And then you read what happens to him and you go, oh my God, is that really what's going to happen? And then we say, no, 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 no. It's, it's about addiction. It's about broken families. But that's not what he said. What's really going to happen is you are going to be shattered on the cross. And if, you, if that happens to you, that is what I call the fierce grace of God, burning away everything that you imagine is true until you're only left with reality itself. As the third patriarch of Zen Buddhism said, don't search after truth. Stop only holding opinions. And the crucifixion is this, this model for me of being stripped and freed from everything I know. And then knowing that something else can happen when that happens. So surrendering is a tactic, doesn't work. Most of us will continue playing with it. But being surrendered is something that is a gift of God that is the most harrowing, horrifying thing you can imagine, but is ultimately the greatest gift you can receive. When you're in one of those crucifixion moments and you can actually say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the moment you say it, you won't have any other thought. But afterwards, I believe you will discover that like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly, the caterpillar is forsaken, never to come back. But what's birthed out of that crucified self is this butterfly of love. I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you get the idea. And that's the message of the text. So my prayer is that you are graced with the gift of being surrendered. I know I'm over. I just want to say one quick thing, which is, Totally odd, but you need to point it out. All the men in the first one fell asleep. In the end of the second one, you can read it, all the women were there for him. Uh, This is is a text where whoever wrote it knew that his true followers were women, and the boys were just doofuses. And and it was really all all about them, the women. But the church is all about the men, so they get their they get their story. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Rami. Fantastic. Just take a moment just to 
remember our world and just say a few prayers for those around us. Just give thanks for our town here, for the beautiful surroundings. For all those visiting at the moment, ask your blessing on them and safety in their travel. All those working up and down the valley, looking after people. May we really show the light of ourselves and your light through the beautiful surroundings and through ourselves. We especially think of those suffering at the moment, experiencing crucifixion all over the world, particularly in our country, still thinking of those in Orlando, those having to face reality. Pray for your grace for them. And for those members of our community that suffering at the moment. We particularly think of Philip Hodgson, Patricia Hill, Barbara Orcutt, Georgia Ortiz, Will Welsh, Carly Nelson, Maureen Hirsch, Elise and Carter Strickland, John Moller, Erin Tully, Betsy Radcliffe, Susan Walker and Sharon Wells, Paula Nurchill and the family of Bernard Phillips. Pray your love and compassion and healing power in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.